What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Ben Jackson, and today we have got Kiara Mitchell. Hello. Pete McKenzie. Hey, yeah. Gabby Magnuson. Hi. And Jake Dello. Good morning. All right, so just two quick hits before we get into it, and both have to do with the Financial Times, incidentally. One is a guy named Ed White, who's a journalist there, did a piece about this North Korea policy consensus changing, and he he interviewed me for it. I'm the first person who ever advocated for arms control as an approach to North Korea, like getting rid of, uh, basically stopping pursuing denuclearization, and then structuring a deal to actually get us to a stable place. And I've elaborated on that since then with like how you would do this, but the starting point, point zero, step zero, is to not be pursuing the unilateral disarmament of the adversary and instead pursuing half a loaf, a partial deal, something incrementalist, right? And just the, the paradigm, the way we think about it has to be that we're trying to stabilize things and avert nuclear war, not disarm the adversary. That's the priority. So I've gotten shit about this over the years uh, from friends, from enemies, from frenemies. And I've sustained it because it's the only logical, sensible position. I think it's what works. Also, at this point, I'm pretty dug in. Like, I couldn't change my position on this if I wanted to. (laughs) But (laughs) the world has changed to fit me, though, because in this piece, he is talking about um, Ed White about how like the consensus around this issue has shifted. He quotes me, he quotes um, Jessica Lee at the Quincy Institute. It's not a surprise that this is where they would be. Um, but he also hits up, I think, John Delury at Yonsei. And then the huge counterposition here is Victor Cha. He's mainstream, but he's also kind of uber hawk. And he was a Bush administration um, special envoy. And Victor now, he for sort of like centrist Democrats, they treat Victor Cha like the Henry Kissinger of Korea policy. They seek his counsel. They kiss up to him. They like invite him. (laughs) He gets invited to all the shit. He makes money off all this stuff. You know, he's, he was a sort of like a mentor to me, actually. He, He helped me a lot. I just, it just happens that like, I disagree with him about a lot of policy issues, but he is quoted in this piece as signing on to the arms control agenda. He invokes different rhetoric around it, but he's on board with everything. He has adopted my position 100%. The only thing he's not signed on to is providing unilateral sanctions relief. He's still in this like tit for tat frame of mind. So he's expecting North Korea to give something in order to get something. And I think that ship has has sailed. And we're the much bigger power. So like in terms of of reciprocity and asymmetric relations, that's just not how it works. Like the great power has to be the one to concede first. Um, That's how you unfuck rivalries. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that's a hard pill to swallow if you're like an instinctive hawk, you know. So he's not there, but that narrows. That's where that's the only real space of disagreement now. So I have fucking not not by myself. But like the Overton window on this issue has moved in my favor. And now this (laughs) the space of disagreement has narrowed about what to do about North Korea to only about like, when do we provide sanctions relief? When do we pursue an end to the Korean War? When do we adjust U.S. force posture in the area? 
but there's a recognition that those things do have to happen and they have to happen in service of a more modest goal than we pursued before. And all of that is like, I don't want to say it's like super promising because if, if you can't do the things that I want to happen, then nothing changes. If you take yeah. Victor's position, still nothing changes. Like if you don't get North Korea unilateral sanctions relief, there there's not going to be like a real sustainable deal. So I don't know. So this is interesting. The winds have shifted. Not everybody who listens to this is a North Korea watcher, but uh, this is a big change. Uh, and it, it creates space for Biden to do something different than predecessors. Is it a huge academic like flex to be able to say that you've been vindicated after all this time? Like, is it quite <laughs> big to be able to say, like, hey, I've been right this whole time, Shane? Yeah, it fucking feels good. I even said it on Twitter, <laughs> which is... <laughs> The thing is, though, like the there's I can't press it too much. Right. I was the first person to ever take this position oh, yeah. six years ago. That's cool. But there's lots of people who've come to the same place. If so, say, like, I'm the guy who invented the Jesus religion. If other people <laughs> also found Jesus, some of that is has to be attributable to me. But like some people find Jesus on their own. You know what I mean? And so they could come to the same conclusion but you know not be doing it because i said it first or whatever or like i made it safe to to do that <laughs> yeah yeah um and people like jeffrey lewis were very quick to and on kit panda like and vip and Narang, all three of them have like big platforms and they were very early movers on this position too and so we created our own expert echo chamber not conspiratorially like totally organically just because we all agreed and you know we've been beating the drum basically for six years and it, the the circle of wisdom expanded as the cult you know the cult grew or whatever so is this... expert echo chamber just the same as knowledge is that, is that yeah. the meaning of knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> for normies would call it knowledge anyways this could end up being north korea policy could still end up being a shit show but you know, you'll take progress where you can get it, or I will. But at least you were right. Yeah, that's the, the shit shot was going to become. Right? That's the important thing. Yeah, I'm hedging. Second quick hit, <laughs> also also from FT. They ran an not an expose. What, what do you call it? An exclusive. They talked to five people in Biden's orbit, and they say that he's going to appoint a White House Asia czar, quote unquote. And <laughs> this was a. I don't know when the czar thing started, but under Obama, it got like really out of control. We had czars for fucking everything. And they are useful in the sense that like you're concentrating attention on an issue. So you have a high level person who basically only works one issue as opposed to like lots of administrative responsibilities. And so they can get a lot done in theory. The, the problem in practice is that they step all over other people's bureaucratic turf and it really hollows out the functions of the bureaucracy. It reduces the relevance of the bureaucracy on policy. And that sounds like, a, like who cares, but it's the bureaucracy that sustains all of these different like bilateral and multilateral relationships. Like it's the bureaucracy that does all the handholding with allies. You know, it's bureaucracy that's relaying talking points and messages on a daily basis uh, to, to other countries. 
And so like you want them to speak with credibility and it, you you lose coordination, you lose the legitimacy of those people doing those jobs. Like when there's, you know, on any given issue, there's going to be dozens of people at embassies, at the State Department, in OSD, at the White House working uh, a given issue. And the uh, the intentions here are quite good because they want to elevate the importance of Asia, right? This is a continuation or a modernization of the rebalance to Asia in some sense. Like, we get it. Asia is America's future. And so that's all good. The fact that they're diluting it away from China. So it's like the region's what we care about. We're not, you know, overly obsessed about China. I also like that, but I don't like the idea of like, or I'm reluctant to sign on to an idea of this czar for the region who's going to undermine um, in principle or dilute the power of the assistant secretary of state for East Asia and the Pacific or the assistant secretary of defense for the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and the, the idea is like this person would theoretically sit within the national security council at the white house National Security Council has a senior director for Asia. It's basically an assistant secretary level position, and they are responsible for coordinating policy across the government. So like what this Asia czar is supposed to functionally do is functionally what the senior director for Asia is supposed to do. And so you're basically uh, lowering the stature of the NSC senior director for Asia position. Having said all that, I'm like 85% sure this is basically a job for Kurt Campbell. This is a position that was created for this, okay. this guy, Kurt Campbell, who is part of the Democratic establishment. He's big talker, super Asia expert. He has strong ties on, he's, he's a kingmaker on Asia stuff for the US. Everybody who does Asian diplomacy in the region or in Washington knows him. Uh, he was an assistant secretary of state for Asia under Obama. Uh, but he was like a deputy assistant secretary of defense before that. He he taught at Harvard for a little while. He's got his own consulting firm now, the Asia Group. Serious, serious fucking player. Um, but there's always this question of like, what do you do with somebody with that level of stature? You know, and he's, of course, in Biden's camp, but he was advising Biden. And so it's like he's too big to be an assistant secretary of state again. So where do you what do you do with him? And yet he's like the top guy for Asia policy in the U.S. who's Democrat. Uh, and so this kind of position seems like it's uniquely made for him. If not for him, it's going to be like Eli Ratner or Kelly Magsman or Mary Rapp Hooper. But it seems like it's such a big thing that it would be for Kurt. But again, there are consequences to doing this. And if Kurt goes out to the region as the Asia czar, it means that all these countries are going to be focusing on doing deals with him, listening to him, and then they're going to relegate the other U.S. officials and dip professional diplomats down to some like lower level or not take it seriously. You know, the, the intentions behind this idea are, are good, but I'm not sold on it or I think there will be downsides. Might sound rather naive, but where do they get the name from? Why czar? Of all the names to choose. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, clearly from fucking Russia, but I don't understand why. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe because it's like you're the king, 
you're the king of that policy yeah. issue, but like America has a hang up so with the word early. king. We fight kings, right? You know, like so yeah, we don't fight czars. In America, oh, in American culture, czar is just some word, but king is like, oh, revolution time, baby. So I don't know. There was one. The article said that there was a one permutation under consideration instead of having like a, a czar. Or if you have a czar, he's replacing the senior director role at the NSC. And then underneath him, you'll have three senior directors instead of one. And so you have a senior director for China, a senior director for India, and then a senior director for like Asian allies. And that's kind of interesting. It's like you're rebranding what the senior director roles are. But having senior level people focusing on each of those accounts, that would... I feel like that would be smarter, but that was just one permutation that they were talking about being possible. This is something to watch. If you're into like bureaucratic policy stuff, this is super, super interesting, especially if you're an Asia watcher. But for everyone else, you probably don't care. We've probably talked about it too long. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for Prediction Market this week, due to some clerical issues we right well i fucked up that's the, for, for the record <laughs> i just i fucking deleted the episode on accident that's all it is sorry question one will the civil war in ethiopia end before the end of the year uh no it will not mostly because you know the prime minister declared an assault on i don't even know how you say it michele Mikel. but there's an ongoing operation within the country military operation. Nobody's stopping it. Nobody's intervening. This is just like happening amid the world turning. Interesting when we talk about civil war in Africa, people jump and this is I've noticed this around the community. People almost jump to intervention by international organizations. Mm. But yet in other areas of the globe that doesn't get jumped to quite as quickly. You know, in Africa, it's almost expected. Is that a thing in foreign policy circles? Do people treat Africa as more like global property as opposed to other areas of the world? I don't know. There's no, you either let these conflicts fight out, right? Or you have local honest brokers who can mediate, like regional, regional powers who can sort of mm. act almost like a local hegemon, you know? Yeah. Or you have international organizations intervene, um, but like that, that typically takes the form of UN peacekeeping. UN peacekeeping requires both sides to agree to it, which is all kinds of fraught. In a, in a civil conflict particularly, or a civil war, uh, the idea that both sides are going to let uh, outside forces m monitor and enforce a truce, I don't know. Most of the time that's not realistic. Um, and so like the international organization dimension of it is out, you know, NATO is not going to intervene in Africa and the, this is not a U.S. national interest kind of thing. So it isn't going to be the U.S. So it's like you're limited to basically mm -hmm. the African Union or uh, a local local as in like an African country, a local power who can play the role of buffering buffering the conflict or mediating between both sides but it's an internal conflict so it's like what who's going to unless you yeah. unless you yeah. have like your you know fucking Italy making some like imperial claim 
where's the stake that that gets you invested in this? Like, I don't see it. And then you compare that with like what's going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan. You actually have powers involved who operate quasi-imperial foreign policies. So the stakes are clear. Their willingness to intervene is clear, you know, and that gives yeah. them that gives them some leverage to try and and broker something. In Africa, like that leverage part is missing, I feel like. Having said all that, I'm kind of bullshitting. Like, I don't know anything about Africa, you know? Question two, um, talking about intervention in Africa, um, following the establishment of a naval base in Sudan, will Russia attempt to establish any more military installations in Africa before March next year? No, but also I don't understand why Russia's doing this. The great game for right now does not apply to Africa, really. Russia has enough to worry about in its near abroad, or the periphery, the Caucasus. Like, maybe it's a flex. The article that inspired... Yeah, yeah, I think it is. The article that inspired this noted how it's the, it'll be Russia's first military base in Africa since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's a huge step, in my opinion. And I don't know why it hasn't been shouted about more. Like, it's a pretty... it's a yeah, I mean, like, I, I am not interested in scaremongering about Russia, but Russia is fucking scary. I don't yeah, talk about yeah. it because I don't want to, like, threaten flight and their capabilities, except for their nukes, their capabilities are not very threatening. It is weird. They are aggressive and they seem to be, like, increasingly ambitious. So something to watch. Question three. Following the pardoning of Michael Flynn, will Trump pardon any more criminals before January the 20th? And if that is the case, who? So he definitely will pardon other people. I, I doubt it'll be anybody as high profile as Michael Flynn, but already we have okay. seen no. Yeah, we've seen that he's he's exploring preemptively pardoning his kids, Rudy Giuliani himself. And the issue is like, can you even do that? It's not clear that you can. Logically, it seems like you shouldn't be able to. Oh, shit. Those are the questions. And just before I signed off on Prediction Market, uh, two weeks ago, I made a statement saying that our cousins in Australia are a shit New Zealand. I'd like to yep. formally redact that because our Australian comrades actually invited a whole bunch of the podcast crew to attend a uh, Pacific uh, Security Forum. And oh, yeah. I want to say thank you to the Australian Institute of International Affairs on behalf of all the members of the pod that were able to make it. And sorry that I called you a shit New Zealand. Time for Sale Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. First one this week, all funny. Sarah Cooper, a comedian. She has a Netflix show. That's something. Uh, she says, the president is currently retweeting multiple tweets from a user named Cat Turd. <laughs> and, and Republicans are like, Joe Biden's cabinet picks are too progressive. <laughs> Which obviously captures everything about this moment and the absurdity, the double standard, all of it. There's something about like truth telling and comedy now. It's, it's a thing. Yeah. Is the fact that people, the mainstream believes biden's cabinet to be progressive maybe in name or in practice do you fear that with that label they can get away with some like centrist stuff that we were worried about during the election like he's going to reaffirm some of the centrist foreign policy that we know doesn't work and he's not going to go as far to the left 
or as far progressive as we really hope. Do you feel the progressive label is going to give him any leeway to do that? There's nothing progressive about anybody that he's appointed so far. And like the, the Secretary of Defense thing, which is still hung up, that nobody in contention is remotely progressive. There's nothing progressive about any of this. It's like when Republicans would label Clinton a fucking communist or whatever, you know, like a third way liberal who has embraced the Republican economic agenda a hundred percent. And he's like, Oh, he's a socialist. Cause he's, cause he, cause he doesn't want to kill gay people or whatever. And yeah. so like, the, yeah. that's where we are. Like there's a, a dumbing down of all of this. That's very problematic. Nothing progressive. You know, the most progressive thing I've seen so far is Biden himself, believe it or not, not being willing to go back to um, free trade negotiations right away, not being willing to right away remove tariffs off of China. Those are progressive positions. And uh, that's not where Wall Street is. You know, that's not where the hedge funds are. That's not where big tech is. It seems like he's being more progressive so far. There's we don't have a lot to work with, but so far compared to like the people he's nominating. All right, second tweet from Paul McDonald, professor at Wellesley College. Actually, he's a very good scholar. He writes about some really interesting stuff to do with like great power decline and empires and stuff. And he says, I've noticed a mini genre of foreign policy op-eds that go something like this. Trump may have been crazy, but his foreign policy idea on some issue I care about was actually sensible. And Paul says, please stop. This formulation assumes the Trump administration had something approximating a rational foreign policy process and not an incoherent and erratic mess of a process that veered from impulse to impulse. So yes, I agree that the U.S. strategy in Afghanistan needs to be reconsidered. But don't tell me that a troop surge followed by vague bilateral deals with the Taliban, then abrupt declarations of withdrawal and victory constitute Mm -hmm. some kind of coherent policy vision. And yes, I also do not want war on the Korean Peninsula, but don't tell me that fire and fury followed by we fell in love, followed by diplomatic (laughs) stagnation and military parades in Pyongyang are the fruits of some master plan. (laughs) (laughs) And he says he ends with like, here is the thing. Here's the great thing about Trump's defeat. We no longer have to refract our foreign policy debates through this ignorant narcissist's view of the world. We can go back to arguing the merits of our policies on their own terms, using logic and evidence like before times. Fucking 100%, man. This is AAA fucking awesome. This is basically what I've been saying for a long time. Too much of the foreign policy establishment that skews right or that is associated, that has ties to the GOP or is the GOP, they take this posture of trying to rationalize Trump or people who are not even on the right, but when Trump does something they like, so the left with uh, you know meeting Kim Jong-un in the summits and stuff, this was a good example of that. It's like Trump, Trump stumbles into one thing that you like and then you end up becoming the cheerleader for him and providing all kinds of like strategic rationales that defend him and support him on that issue. But then when he does it on another issue, there's a whole bunch of people just like you doing the same thing on that issue. So he stumbles around on his dick from issue to issue, fucking up everything, doing it all simply for personal enrichment or because it's his id. Uh, He saw something on Fox News that triggered him, right? Or it's like this emotional, personal thing, or he wants to cash out for a business deal. All corrupt, all craven, 
all bad motivations that have like nothing to do with the national interest. And yet, because of these stupid fucks who defend him and promote him because it's the one issue, because they're doing something that they like, they're endorsing the whole thing. And like the fact that he got some people on the left with this was what really killed me. Like that was what, you know, has driven me mad and like has I've I've been my research has been consumed partly with like fighting with some of these people. Um so Paul McDonald, he's exercising that same frustration. He has obviously correct about this, but also he's he's correct at the end of this where he's like we don't have to do this anymore. Who cares what QAnon thinks about fucking foreign policy? We can just talk. We like, what's the issue? Let's debate that issue on its merits and forget about the Trump shit. The Trump show's over. So I appreciate the attempt to move on. So out of curiosity, really quickly, is it kind of one of those things where even like people you respect, it like basically just undermines their entire thing as soon as you see that they're like, oh man, Trump's like batshit crazy, but, and then it's just, your respect goes out the window. Like you don't even consider like looking at the article because you're just like, man, fuck this. Yeah, well, I, I, I lose, yeah. I've lost respect for a lot of people the past four years. Yeah. These fucking captive mind quizzling fucks. It's yeah, no. disgusting. And if if the election was more contested or if Trump won, we would be in big trouble because of these motherfuckers. So like the technocrats who basically converted to politicos in the name of Trump, but who don't think of themselves as that because behind closed doors, they still shit talk Trump, but then publicly they, ah, oh, fuck these motherfuckers. <laughs> so yeah, like I, I, cause I have a bunch of friends who are Republicans. That's how it works in foreign policy. I am alienated from so many of them now. Like the lion's share of them are my, my enemies and they just don't know it. Or I mean, some of them do because I've gone after them, but yeah. <laughs> Starting beef on the podcast. What's my other thing? No, like one of my rules of the road is like avoid rivalries whenever possible because they're not productive, you know, like they're very yeah. destructive. So that applies from to foreign policy, but also to your like regular life. So uh, I'm put in a hard place because these people are emerging as my enemies and mercifully, all of this is moot by the fact that Biden won. Yeah. This would have continued to be like a massive problem if Trump had won or if the election was reasonably contested, but it's not, thankfully. Cool. So jumping into my first tweet of the week, this one's from Aram Her, professor at Missouri University and the Missouri University Truman School of Public Affairs. Her tweet reads, Taiwan appears to have a consistent strategy. The retelling and reframing of national stories to brand itself primarily in civic and democratic terms and also distance further from China's co-ethnic claim over the island. It's smart, especially because it binds the hands of the international community. If liberal values trump illiberal ones, how much longer can it afford to ignore and isolate Taiwan? At the same time as work by Lev Nachman, William Young, and others have shown about the less than ideal realities of the humanitarian assistance program, the only way this strategy really works is for Taiwan to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Then I figured I'd flag this down for you because I think you could definitely do better uh in terms of like elaborating this Pam. no i mean this is basically what i feel or this is yeah. this is the my position um if if taiwan was still under Chiang kai shek's rule and it was an autocracy i would not i'd be much more reluctant to weigh in if china were to invade an authoritarian taiwan it's like well that's not good but you know dictators are going to dictator, you know, like that shit happens. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't go to war yeah. for it. 
But <laughs> when it's a dictator invading a democracy and that dictator has shown ambitions even beyond that, like other territorial disputes that it has, that's fucking alarm bells, particularly when it's a great power. Like this isn't Saddam Hussein sure. invading his fucking oil neighbor. This is this is a great power with like hegemonic designs. So that's a problem. The The moral math on this to me is very simple. Chinese are not a free peoples, mainland Chinese. The Taiwans are a free peoples. You cannot be, if you're especially if you're progressive, you cannot be indifferent to the plight of free people, peoples anywhere, but free peoples in particular who are being oppressed by non-free peoples. Who you side with could not be more clear. The only question is what do you do to show solidarity and how important is what you do for them to be able to maintain their own existence, their own independence. And so for Taiwan to um, embrace their identity as a kind of like cosmopolitan liberal democracy is precisely what, I mean, that's like smart strategy, but it's also their real legitimate claim to being separate. Like who cares what this dispute between China and Taiwan would be if they were both dictatorships, you know, when it's a fucking dictatorship versus democracy, it's a different thing. And I think this is the Taiwan is adopting a narrative and promoting a narrative that is the smartest basis for them and the most correct to be able to enlist the support of the international community and in particular the United States. So I, I think she's on to something here. So jumping into my second tweet of the week, this one's from Caitlin Talmadge, Georgetown professor, Brooklyn senior fellow and MIT research affiliate. So. Her tweet is responding to the news that Trump has seven weeks left in office, but he's given his top advisors the green light to better the Iranian regime. And I think that doesn't hazard a full-on war before Joe Biden is inaugurated. So <laughs> really funnily, Professor Talmadge goes, I love the assumption that escalation risk with Iran is something the Trump administration solely controls, like a knob they turn up and down at will. You know, like nukes and escalation and coercion is kind of her beat. And this is... This is coming, all of this is in response to the fact that the fucking Israelis assassinated Iran's top nuclear scientist. Yeah. And it's pretty what, not only is that a casus belli, like a potential Who trigger for war, like um, the, not only is it like highly escalatory to do that, like you're courting serious risks here, but um the reasoning behind it seems to assume that you are not courting risks. Like the reason why you would do this presumes that Iran is not going to take warlike actions against you. Unless you want a war with Iran, which I think Bibi Netanyahu actually does want a war with Iran. Yep. But un unless you like American Americans who are in the pocket of APAC or whatever, like the Israel lobby, you need to be clear-eyed about the prospect of war here because it seems like Israel's taking actions to create war. It seems like the Trump administration is supporting it or colluding with it. Um, and this only ends in a bad place. I've heard that the reason why this is happening at all, this increased pressure on Iran, is to force Iran to do something that preemptively sabotages Biden's ability to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. And well, it's so fucking shit. And like, I've, I've heard that from like four or five different people now. Like I think it's the actual motivation and that's super fucked up. 
Like, and that, that was sort of the question I was going to ask, man. Like, what's the point of this? Because Israel knows that you're not going to end a nuclear program by assassinating one man. Yeah. They know that. Yeah. So, like, what, what could their possible goal be except just to start a fire? There, there, there is an, an Israeli theory of deterrence that's called, like, it's, I forget the exact phrase, but it's like mowing the lawn. And it's this belief that you reinforce general deterrence over time by occasionally not just muscle flexing, but killing people, like imposing costs. And so the belief is that the North Koreans have a variation on this belief. I write about this in the, my recent book, but it's this idea that like you, you generate outcomes of deterring your enemies that are bigger than the actions you're taking, as long as the actions that you're taking accrue over time. So it's like sometimes you have to mow the grass in order to, by killing killing terrorists and killing Hezbollah or whatever, in order to deter Iran in general is kind of like the logic here. And so they, and when you, so when you're assassinating a nuclear scientist, on one level, like you're slowing the nuclear program in theory. I don't think that's going to be the case at all, but like that's one argument, but there's a bigger deterrence argument. And it's not, I don't think it's valid. Israel's deeply insecure strategic position in the Middle East yeah. is partly yeah. self-created. Like, <laughs> it's this theory of deterrence that leads them to take these offensive actions against uh, state and non-state actors, which then causes retaliation and escalation. And like, they seem to be oblivious to the fact that they're trapped in their own self-licking ice cream cone of death. Yeah. And, well, and they just yeah. keep doing it. The only, and this all, the logical termination point for all of this is war. And it happens to be probably war with Iran. But why does the United States government support Israel so much? Why do they let them get away with this shit? Uh, yeah, part of it is the evangelical community. A lot of it, though, is in the, like, fact that it's not Christian, but, like, Christian-adjacent. Yeah. Non-Muslim. Yeah. There's a, th th this is one of the many, many ways that, um, racism in american foreign policy manifests like the racism is in the bones of the american character and that that manifests differently in different contexts and so it manifests one way in policing one way in housing policy right one way in education in the prison yeah. system but then in foreign policy it it mutates into all kinds of different things one of those things is Policies that are deeply pro-Christian, Christian adjacent, and deeply anti—yeah, very civilizational in character, and civilizational mm -hmm. is racial. So, yeah. Plus, the lobby itself is very powerful. There's a lot of money flowing around for influencing. Let's jump into armchair analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. This week, we've got the beautiful, dumb dream of McDonald's peace theory, which is an essay in foreign policy by Paul Musgrave, a friend of the pod. Mm -hmm. And Musgrave writes, when I was a college freshman taking a course on American foreign policy, our textbook was The Lexus and the Olive Tree, a 1999 bestseller by New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. Side note, Thomas Friedman um, has been the subject of, of fun comments from from van so i'm hoping that we'll get yeah. more of those not a fan uh, of tom friedman proceed <laughs> musgrave writes friedman's claim was simple 
The benefits of economic integration reduce the policy choices open to governments, making war, which disrupts that integration, so unattractive as to be practically unthinkable. In Friedman's hands, the sophisticated flavors of Cobden and Smith were homogenized into a quick serve dish, which he called the golden arches theory of conflict prevention. And Musgrave explains that theory as a result of the expansion of global capitalism that Friedman wrote, no two countries that both have a McDonald's have ever fought a war against each other. That the presence of a McDonald's restaurant didn't exert magical conflict reducing properties, however, but rather that McDonald's strategically placed its restaurants in countries that were unlikely to go to war in the first place. Now this really quickly fell apart. Pretty much immediately after the book went to print, the US-led NATO bombing campaign against Serbia started. And Belgrade had had a McDonald's since 1988, so it wasn't, you know, it, the theory was not effective. Uh, whether wrong. it was causal or correlative. I know, it's, it's mad. <laughs> um, but Musgrave writes with not a, a small amount of um, amusement that Friedman himself never let it go. In a revised and somewhat annoyed edition of the Lexus and the Olive Tree, he complained that critics <laughs> had got him, him wrong all along. And that Friedman's real defense hangs on the idea that McDonald's was irrelevant to the Golden Arches theory. That Kosovo proves just how much pressure nationalist regimes can come under when the costs of their adventures and wars of choice are brought home to their people in the age of globalization. Now, Musgrave is really clear that subsequent years and subsequent conflicts have been no more kind to Friedman's theory. And he writes, particularly with reference to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, that Friedman's logic suggests that that conflict shouldn't have begun or shouldn't have been so bloody once it did, that both Armenia and Azerbaijan score highly and almost identically on the ETH Zurich KOF globalization index. The pace of death suggests that the conflict could qualify as a so-called real war by the traditional 1,000 battle-related deaths criterion. And if the conflict is knocked to the final support from the Golden Arches theory, it is also finally toppled whatever confidence remained in the 1990s belief in the eternal sunshine of the American order. The resurgent Nagorno-Karabakh conflict provides yet another reason to worry that the world is entering a new phase of a more violent conflict, including major wars. Then globalization will no more prevent them than burgeoning trade before Archduke Ferdinand's assassination prevented the First World War. Grand theories of McDonald's peace or anything of that ilk can't bind the behavior of nations as effectively as we thought. Musgrave writes, at the very least, I can try to avoid errors as catastrophic and hubristic as the lazy confidence in American power that defined my youth. So I thought this was actually, I found it a weirdly moving piece because I think it encapsulated quite a lot of the debate and the evolution and thought of the past four years. But then what did you think? Dude, this is the best piece I've read this year by a mile. I've read some good stuff this year. This is fucking amazing. This may be harder for you guys to appreciate. Maybe you get a sense of the sentimentality behind it. Um, from this piece but like Paul he, I think he's maybe like one or two years behind me but like we basically grew up in the same era and it was the era of the Economist magazine as the fiat the authority you know it was Tom Friedman as the authority going to doing book traveling sales to like towns big and small to sell how the world is flat and all this shit 
everybody was cashing in. Everybody was cashing in on regionalism, cashing in on foreign policy. Foreign policy is trade policy. It didn't matter if you were a Democrat or a dictator. You were on board. If you were a dictator, you were like laundering your money and stealing money from the public coffers and then using the international financial system to like hide it. Um, if you were a Democrat, you let them do it because you assumed that, well, eventually they would be forced to reform politically. And so you're actually spreading democracy. This is so fucking wrong, right? Um, the McDonald's peace theory was the apotheosis of this, you know? Tom Friedman had a way of explaining in very simple terms what scholars had already long established, like what had become conventional wisdom academically. And this is a very good example of that, right? Like the capitalist peace is, is McDonald's peace theory. Friedman just dresses it up nicely. It was always stupid to treat these, this is like the paradigms versus ideologies thing, to treat this stuff as if it was ideology when what it really was is a way of thinking about the world. There are places, spaces, times when the logic of economic interdependence is the best explanation for why there's not conflict. That is not the same thing as saying that pursuing economic interdependence will prevent conflict. The same way that we can say that sometimes the peace that exists between democracies has to do with the fact that the countries involved are democracies and therefore have checks and balances, restraints on arbitrary power, they subscribe to liberal values, they identify each other as being mutually liberal, right? Sometimes that's the case, but that's not the same thing as saying that pursuing democratization in other countries is a way of preventing conflict with them or between them, right? And what happened ever since basically our whole lifetime and the way that we taught and learned liberal IR, and liberal IR was just IR. One of the things, I never mentioned this before, one of the things that happened why like a lot of scholars started dissing the paradigm wars in international relations, some of that was because the paradigm wars were like regressive or like they weren't making additional contributions to knowledge. So it like petered out. Um, there, we weren't building new knowledge at a certain point. We were just like haggling over existing shit. But part of that was because moving to a post-paradigm international relations, if you're moving away from something, you're moving towards something else, right? By moving away from paradigms, you were moving toward liberal IR. You were moving toward the, the victoriousness of one specific paradigm. And liberal IR came to dominate IR as when you think about like all the, the random little theories about like rationalist explanations of war and coercive bargaining and all this stuff and Thomas Schelling, all of that is within a rationalist paradigm that's broadly liberal. It imports assumptions from microeconomics and that suffuses liberal international relations. That is the foundation of this way of viewing international relations and all of it happens to work for capital work for economic power basically as it's structured all of it launders the reputation of globalization and so when you went through an international relations program of study in the 90s and in the early 2000s we were fed lots of stupid fucking lazy stories about american liberal hegemony and about fucking the inevitability of globalization and about the pacifying effects of capital, of free trade. And part of the way that that pacifying effect worked was by 
it was it was promoting democracy by other means, regime change of dictatorships by other means. And so everybody felt like life was good. Paul somehow manages to cap he first of all, the piece is like a very good summary of liberal IR as like a paradigm in its evolution. But also somehow he manages to capture like the emotion in all of this. The fact that like we really were fat, dumb and happy intellectually. The only people like doing rigorous work were doing rigorous work in defense of the existing status quo economic order. And like when you think about it, that's pretty fucked up. Like we used all of our brain power for like this field that was based on the causes of war and peace. We used all of our brain power to justify the existing economic order, haves over have nots. That's fucked up. All of our theories, even our theories about war and peace, were reinforcing this venerated place for free movement of transnational capital and free trade, the primacy of corporations. Corporations are people too. All of that is a, it's a generation of shit. <laughs> This is a much-needed corrective, um, and I think a lot of people are already here intellectually, but we're, we haven't moved emotionally out of the post-liberal IR world. And a lot of our foreign policies, and New Zealand is, like I put New Zealand's foreign ministry on blast when I saw this piece, because New Zealand is the exemplar of this whole like foreign policy is trade policy era, super fucked up, super selling out the people super based on bad assumptions about the liberalizing, democratizing, pacifying effects of spreading trade. What you spread is inequality and corruption. And it's not all bad because there is a little bit of like rising tide lifts all boats, a little bit of like absolute gains happening, right? But there is a lot of bad and the good does not necessarily outweigh the bad. And this piece is telling us all that we need to move on, particularly for policymakers who think that we, by forging economic relationships, you're doing something good for the national interest or for the world. That's where you're really fucking up. That's where you're, you're basically wrong. And this small conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia is a reminder of that. Because we really were making foreign policy, all of us in the democratic world, on the assumption that A, democracies do not fight with each other, but B, neither do economically interdependent nations. And we know from fucking World War I that that's just not true, you know? That at the time, the world had never been more economically interdependent. And what we did was we rationalized why that was a unique case. Oh, that was an outlier. War is a fucking outlier. It still happens. So there's so much here. It's so good. And this is, it gets at the heart of why I don't view the theories that we develop in IR and in security studies as gospel or knowledge. You can't be too invested in any of them because they help you see the world. But in showing you the world, they can only show you parts of it. And that occludes or excludes other parts. And the world is too complex for that. So it's like, these are tools to help make sense of things so that you can make choices and evaluate risks. But don't take it too much more seriously than that, man. And, part, and one of the arguments against my view was the liberal inevitability of globalization, McDonald's peace theory kind of worldview. And like, if that's what you believe, then you couldn't believe what I'm saying about tools and frames and stuff. 
So this was amazing piece. I'm going to start teaching this. This is going to be in the Intro to Security Studies curriculum starting next year. So shout out. Following that great analysis, uh, I have my S9 take to add on to that. The funny thing. Something about Marxism? the McDonald's. No. Oh, <laughs> Marxism is not S9, sir. So I'm sorry. The Marxist theory of McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. The it's, great communist uh, redeemer. <laughs> You know, fuck it. I'm being bullied. Fucking out of here. About the Nagorno Karabakh conflict and McDonald's, I I pitched the piece because it reminded me of the time the Azerbaijani McDonald's Twitter account tweeted out imperial propaganda in behalf of the uh, Azerbaijani government. Oh yeah, that was yeah. They mentioned he he mentioned that somewhere in the piece. yeah, that was like the the news peg for this article because it's like, hey, McDonald's, why are you getting involved here? All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So for Ask Me Anything, anything this week, we have two questions. The first one is from Anonymous, and it is, what does the movie Training Day have to do with Asian security? So if you haven't seen Training Day, it is this movie where uh, it takes place in L.A. Denzel Washington is this super fucking corrupt cop. And Ethan Hawke is his new new cop on the beat as a detective. He's a narco detective. And he's getting a tryout, basically, for whether he can run with this guy and be on his team. And Denzel is disgusting human being he makes logical arguments that justify bullying and theft and assaulting people and killing people literally he breaks every fucking law and ethan hawk's character is like this do-gooder cop right he has like the a moral sensibility of right and wrong and he wants to protect people and uphold the law and denzel washington is like showing him how the world really is kind of thing and Denzel Washington pulls Ethan Hawke deeper and deeper into this corrupt world, gives him PCP, makes him take PCP on accident. Uh, It's a fucked up story and it's really fucking good. But basically Denzel Washington's character in the end, he has his comeuppance, but um, the whole thing is just going deeper and deeper into a way that the world works that is gross and is kind of like morally offensive, but also rings true. And I on Twitter, I compared Ethan, me being Ethan Hawke, basically, the more I go deeper into Asian security. And I just meant that like the way the U.S. government in particular, but also like a lot of um, military people in Asia hands, the way that they deal with Asian history and Asian security over the past 30 years, like as I research this stuff, I find more and more that regionalism is actually about neoliberalism. Regionalism is about crony capitalism in authoritarian governments and getting Western multinationals and American multinationals paid off of that crony capitalism. You know, I find out that, you know, the, uh, the alliance system itself that the U.S. has with its closest allies. There's huge constituencies in the ally countries who feel like the U.S. is oppressive to them and it's not part of the narrative, you know? And, like, there are times when we exploit the fact that we're the senior member of the alliance to bully them. 
And it's like, oh, this is how the world really works. And we like to think that economic interdependence and institutions and regionalism, cooperative diplomacy is the thing that stabilizes Asia. But at the core of it, there's like some serious naked power calculations. And a lot of this system does run on corruption. Um, I'm speaking a little bit to the fact that the like think tank consulting world of foreign policy and of Asia policy, a lot of people getting paid and it's how it is. And it like their opinions are distorted. And so they say things that benefit power and benefit the status quo. And they, that's what they write. Those are the positions that they give voice to. And it has a lot to do with just getting fucking paid on the side. And I'm disgusted by a lot of this stuff. It's presented to me as like, this is the way it is. The only thing that keeps me from being the Denzel Washington is that like I have this unique posting in New Zealand where I don't have to worry about chasing consulting money. I don't have to worry about shilling for corporations. Like I have, you know, knock on wood, a, a salary that's untethered from me towing some company fucking line or some specific policy. And so the result is that I try to speak truth to power more, but it's seductive to know that there's money out there. If only I just tweak my opinions. So that's sort of what I'm talking about. Like, do you give in to the corrupt world as it is, or do you sort of hold the line? At the beginning of training day, it wasn't clear what was going to happen to Ethan Hawke, you know? So that's what it sort of feels like. The second question this week is from a student at the Naval War College. Do you have any opinion about the idea of the Navy creating the first fleet to cover the Indian Ocean region? Yeah, so Naval War College is in Newport, Rhode Island. It's actually like a really nice coastal town. A couple weeks ago, the Navy floated the idea or said that they're going to pursue uh, establishing a first fleet, a new fleet. May or may not have a headquarters. If you have a new fleet, it's going to have to have a headquarters, but they're ambiguous about that. The, the whole idea of this is that they'd be creating a new organizational structure to, the, in their reasoning, to quote, check China or put China in check. And it would be focused on more of the like Indian Ocean region. It's like the far west of Asia. But this, for one thing, this, I've talked to people in the Pentagon recently. Nobody had even heard of this idea a month ago. Like, that's true. People at PACOM, Indo-PACOM, whatever, fucking Pacific Command out in Hawaii, you know, they're responsible for the entire region, including the Indian Ocean. They've not heard of this. Right. And the seventh fleet in the Navy is already responsible for Asia. So it's not like India is not getting coverage. So this this is a very weird recommendation. It's costly. It runs counter to trends of like military spending. Like we have to rein in military spending. There's politically there's not going to be an appetite for the defense budget to be as big as it's been. So this is not. It's not a sustainable thing. More importantly, if you're going to create a new fleet, where are the ships going to come from? Inevitably, a bunch of them are going to come from 7th Fleet. 7th Fleet is already responsible for China. Or like it's responsible for Asia, so like China's part of that. So when you think of of contingencies where you're fighting China and you're using surface ships to fight them, it's the service it's the 7th Fleet who owns those ships that you'll be using to fight China. So if creating the first fleet is about fighting China, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Or you're robbing Peter to pay Paul 
by taking from the service element that would be providing the resources to do this fight in the first place. To me, this is very much a shell game. And what I heard, um, I said this on Twitter actually like six months ago, was that everybody in the Pentagon realized that they had no adult supervision. And so everybody, the COCOMs, the services, the headquarters staff, everybody started pursuing every single initiative policy-wise that they wanted. Every single resource that they wanted to get, they're trying to get. And so for the last six months, you've had a run, a run on U.S. foreign policy, basically, where everyone's trying to take what they can, lock in what they can, change what they can, with the recognition that currently it's Lord of the Flies in terms of like national security oversight. But when Biden comes in, whoever the Secretary of Defense is going to be, that's going to be a new sheriff in town, the parents are home from from vacation or whatever, so now you've got to fucking clean up and get your act together and be normal. But right now, you have this anarchical opportunity to push everything that you can entrepreneurially. This is part of that. And that's why you could have something like creating a new fucking headquarters organization and like nobody heard about it prior. So this is really stupid, um, and my sense is that like Biden's people are not going to allow this. Um, I think this is like a bad idea that people are trying to jam into the system. Uh, the question I have for you, Van, just for AMA, I hope you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was inspired by the Korea Oceana presentations too, but I definitely wanted your take. So like in light of the Biden administration transition and the commentary of his commitment so far, would you be able to give us your thoughts on his att- intent for the American commitment on the Korean Peninsula and helping mediate rock? Uh, and Japan relations like right now I can't imagine it's like a super high priority given things but you know still it's not a priority right and Asia like a lot of foreign policy frankly is not a priority compared to like Great Depression economy COVID pandemic you know worst in the world response these are the priorities fucking conspiracy theory right-wing militias advocating civil war that's a fucking priority you know what i mean japan rock historical frictions is not exactly like front burner problem however the empire is big enough that you can walk and chew gum at the same time so like there are going to be this whole asia czar thing that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode there's there's clearly a recognition among the foreign policy hands that asia needs to be a priority and we need to show that and so like one of the ways of doing that is dedicating senior leader attention, not just Biden, in fact, not primarily Biden, senior leader attention on problems of Asia. There's going to be, there already is a like redoubling of U.S. commitment to Northeast Asia, but that is not the same thing as having good relations with Japan and South Korea, or like that doesn't necessarily equal stability. Um, The U.S. has very little ability to mediate ties between or friction between Japan and South Korea. Um, ultimately, the relationship with South Korea is going to depend on what we do on North Korea. So if we do the same old shit on North Korea, because there's progressives in South Korea running the government, it's going to actually alienate South Korea. But the constituency for doing the same old shit on North Korea is like very strong in Washington. And frankly, like most establishment people do not have ties to the South Korean left. Like they just don't the people in power are not people that they're close to. And so, uh, you know, time will tell how all this works out. But I know, like, in terms of intentions, 
the U.S. and Biden's people, they want to find ways to mute the friction between Japan and South Korea and get them to work together on, you know, practical or functional issues. And they want to maintain stability on the Korean Peninsula, um, ideally making progress on um, the North Korean nuclear question. But all of that comes down to your theory of the case for how you do these things. Um, and that's what's right. kind of TBD. Yeah. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees. Uh, throw us a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us uh, if you haven't done it already. If you have, thank you very much. Catch you next time. Peace.